0: I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Today, we begin our discussion on a deeply beloved book by many, but at the same time, one of the most censored books ever written on the American continent. When it was published in 1960, it was an immediate hit with the public. Critics called it melodramatic and oversimplistic, but that hasn't stopped people from reading it and loving it. HarperCollins boasts almost 50 million copies sold by latest count in over 40 languages. It won the coveted Pulitzer Prize. In 1962, it was adapted by uh, Horton Foote into an Academy Award winning film, you know, admittedly diminishing the role of Scout in the story of the children. But drawing considerable attention and acclaim for many reasons, one being the memorable and um, Oscar-winning performance of Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch. The focus of the movie is, uh, of course, the trial of a wrongly convicted and clearly innocent African-American gentleman by the name of Tom Robinson. And the film is considered one of the greatest American films of all time. Even Harper Lee liked it. (laughs) After reviewing it, she had this to say, I can only say that I am a happy author. Uh, they have made my story into a beautiful and moving motion picture.
0: You know, I'm, I don't know how many artists are You a never writer. hear that. No, you from really a don't. Well, of course it's the racial element of the book that has always kept this book at the center of controversy from both sides really of the political aisle. It's been held in contempt for its language, which is extremely raw and obviously, and, and for that reason alone, has been censored in many circles. But the language isn't the only thing that's problematic about it. Many have drawn attention to the idealized characterization of Atticus Finch as a paragon of respectability and champion of the oppressed. Toni Morrison labeled him a white savior. More recently, social advocates have challenged Lee's characterization of the Yules as basically feral animals that are subhuman. There is no doubt the setting is the segregated south of the 1930s. There's no doubt that Maycomb is a broken town. There's no doubt that the child scout looks at her father in that way. We hope you know, all nine-year-old daughters are afforded the opportunity to look at their father's. So is this a dated sociological study, or is it a timeless classic? Lee's ability to stir so many emotions and raise so many questions is freakishly genius. Through the eyes of a child, she questions our ability as humans to even understand the role of time in our world, the place of human judgment, our ability to give and receive social acceptance, causes of human cruelty, and human kindness. She goes in a lot of directions, but what do all these things mean when presented as a whole? How do they connect? Because she does connect them to each other. What did these things mean to the most provincial people possible in 1935? And what do they mean to a cosmopolitan American in 1960? What do they mean today in a world that is widely interconnected and global
1: Uh, I know you like to talk about timeless themes and universal truths, and so do I. So don't get me wrong, but, you know, historically speaking, there's a lot here I think is important to discuss as well. And this book is not just regarded as sensitive because of its language and racial issues. It's also considered one of the most revealing portraits of the American South to come out of that generation. Uh, and, And beyond issues of race, there's a lot more to see. The book's important historically. Lee was born an insider to a very specific enclosed cultural group, but she pulled out of her culture and tried to examine it critically in some ways as an outsider, but an outsider who understood the inside.
0: It's a paradox.
1: She is someone from that era, uh, uh, and who understands what is to some a very mysterious and cryptic subculture—the American South—and or really the American rural small town of the South. I think most would would agree that the regional identity is specifically and uniquely uh, rural.
0: Well, you know, Lee's setting is fictional, but much of the small town life she portrays is clearly autobiographical in many ways. I mean, Macon County isn't real, but Monroeville, Alabama, where she's from, is real. And they say, although I've never been to Monroeville, that the layout of those streets is awfully familiar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, uh, I agree, and. Culturally, here is some, there is some crossover with the big cities of Atlanta and Nashville and even New Orleans. Uh, but by and large, what she depicts is what we see across the South. Uh, the small town life of Alabama and Mississippi and Arkansas, Louisiana, Georgia, and even Florida. They share many of the culture distinctions highlighted by Lee. And I would like to add personally that I'm a fan of every one of these states, and I've been in all of them, and they have a lot to offer that's very positive.
0: Well, me too. And, you know, but she writes about her town, life in her town, during the era in which she grew up. Another question that naturally comes up then is if the people in the Make 'em community are also the same people that she grew up with. People often asked Harper Lee this, or asked Alice, her sister, Is Atticus Finch your dad? They both responded that in many ways Atticus Finch was their father, Amasa Coleman Lee, or as he was called, A.C. But there are lots of things that are different about Atticus and their dad. Her father was a lawyer, but not really a fiery litigator. He was mostly a tax lawyer. He was the present parent in their life, but technically he wasn't a single father. Lee did have a mother, but her mother suffered from mental illness and she was often absent. She also embarrassed the family and would scream at people across town. She was an embarrassment to her kids. Like Atticus, A.C. was the primary caregiver. The Lee family employed an African-American woman to take care of their home and the children during the week. Truman Persons, otherwise known as Truman Compote, was a small boy in the neighborhood. Lee's best friend. He's awfully similar to the character Dill. There's a lot of similarities. Of course, many have observed that the heroism displayed in Atticus's character in real life is really close to the akin of the heroism displayed in the law practice of Alice, Harper Lee's sister. So I think probably what's the case is... As in every good work of fiction, Lee took what she knew, made up a bunch of stuff, and it's just kind of cool to think about all those things.
1: <laughs> and have we not always said that authors write out of their experience? You well, know? they should. Well, I read one article of that called Alice um, Atticus in a Skirt, and I want to point out that Alice practiced law until she was literally 100 years old, if you can believe it.
0: I know they're they're a unique uh, individual. They both are. Alice and Lee lived together. And after Lee got famous, Alice was the gatekeeper to Harper Lee. Unlike Capote, who enjoyed the fast life in New York, loved the celebrity scene... Those were not Harper Lee's jam. She was never comfortable with the fame and the attention thrust upon her for most of her life. Not even Oprah Winfrey could get her to come on her show.
1: (laughs) You know, I saw the clip on YouTube of Oprah uh, talking about her private luncheon with Harper Lee, which is as close as she ever got to interviewing her. It wasn't recorded, and Lee wouldn't be on the show, but they did talk. And according to Oprah... Lee said several things that uh, really are fascinating. The first thing Oprah noted was Lee's self-described shyness. She told Oprah she was like boo. Uh, But another thing that scandalized Oprah was when she said, I wish I had a dime for every copy of that book that has sold. Oprah said in shock, you don't? You know, And the answer was that she didn't. I mean, at the time, they didn't expect it to be an international sensation, and her contract wasn't constructed to accommodate that. And uh, However, don't feel too badly for Lee. There's been a movie contract and even more recently a Broadway play based on the book. So she had opportunity to get better deals uh, since that original one. And Another thing I thought was interesting, Oprah asked her why she hasn't written another novel. Oprah had asked her why, and she said, uh, and I quote here, I already said everything I needed to say. Already we have those buses coming down to my house, and they pull up to the door, still looking for Boo Radley. And I just don't want that to happen any more than it already does.
0: (laughs) You know, there's so much intrigue with this book. I mean, there's intrigue, like what you just referenced, about her privacy. There's intrigue about this relationship with Truman Capote And most ironically, for a book about legal intrigue, there's a lot of legal intrigue about the rights to the book. Alice, as you mentioned, was a practicing lawyer, practiced lawyers for 70 years, died at 103. You know, they're a family of long livers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's an unusually close-knit family for sure. And you mentioned the Dill character was based on Truman Capote. And I wanted to point out, and maybe this is something we should bring up in another episode to a larger extent, but... You know, according to Alice, Capote was jealous beyond measure when Lee won the Pulitzer and he didn't. They had a huge falling out, so there was a lot of drama to cover there.
0: <laughs> well, let's just add one more layer of intrigue to this intriguing story. In July of 2015, the world's fascination with Harper Lee was reignited once again with the release of Lee's second novel a novel she apparently didn't even tell Oprah about in that interview you just referenced. This book is such a mystery. It was released so late in her life, all these years, and so many claims she's personally made that she'd never written any novel after Mockingbird. Alice had implied that she hadn't wanted to because after winning the Pulitzer, she would only be competing with herself. But in 2015, Lee, at 89 years of age, Living in a nursing home, suffering from dementia, having suffered a stroke, releases a new book. And it shocked the world. In fact, it shocked the state of Alabama to such a degree that it actually launched an elder abuse investigation. Why had no one known about this new book till now? Did Lee know what people were doing in her name? The truth is there's a lot that the world doesn't know about Harper Lee. And I'm not even sure we certainly can know a hundred percent what's possible, but she'd really given one recorded interview. She's never gotten out, never even to receive honorary doctorates or awards or things like that. She would split her time between New York and Monroeville, but didn't live any kind of, you know, well-documented life with the reporters. She didn't trust reporters because they never would quote her correctly. <laughs>
1: There was one radio interview she did do in 1964. uh, They asked her why so many American writers of note came out of the South, and she had a theory on that. They also asked her what she was thinking before she submitted her book, and I'm going to quote her response to that one. She said, I never expected any sort of success with Mockingbird. I was hoping for a quick and merciful death at the hands of the reviewers, but at the same time, I sort of hoped someone would like it well enough to give me encouragement. (laughs) Well, she
0: got more than a little encouragement. She got more success than almost anyone that's written any book, especially for a first attempt. The National Council of Teachers of English at one point released a stat that this book was being read by 74% of American high schools. Now, if you're not living in America, that doesn't sound crazy uh, because other countries have national curriculum, but America doesn't. We don't share a single culture. Every state, every city, almost every district has different populations, different expectations, different cultural norms. Curriculum choices in America are always made at the local level. It is almost impossible for 75% of the country to agree on any single book, especially if you think how controversial this one is.
1: And to think America has agreed to love this book for the last 70-plus years through our continual national discussion on race. I mean, it's really remarkable. This little lady has united America in that way. I mean, we share an understanding of quotes from the book. and We understand the symbols from the book. We love the humor in the book. We feel empathy and cry together reading it. And uh, that's not just English teachers or literary types. I mean, lots of students who hate all books will make an exception for To Kill a Mockingbird.
0: <laughs> I know. Which brings me back to the thing about 2015 when Lee is 89 years old releasing and Harper Cow- Collins announces that they're going to publish this second novel. Everyone who grew up adoring To Kill a Mockingbird, excited, dying to read. What? Is this going to be a sequel? But unfortunately, if that was your expectation, Ghost at a Watchman was a disappointment. It is not a sequel. But if it's not a sequel, what is it? It's the same cast of characters. It's set 20 years later. How is that not a sequel? Well, the short version of the general consensus today is that it is the initial version or first draft of what eventually would be rewritten to become Mockingbird.
1: You know, that's hard to understand since it's not the same story. I mean, from my understanding, uh, the trial is referenced in the book, but it's not part of the plot at all. And uh, there's just a whole lot of other things, including uh, a love interest for Scout that isn't Dill. It doesn't seem like it could be the same book.
0: Well, and then in that sense, it isn't. I mean, it isn't the same story. It's Scout's story, but it's not the same story. Her editor liked Scout, and her editor liked Lee. But she thought she needed to make some serious revisions. One, and likely the most noticeable, involves the character Atticus Finch. Everyone knows Atticus Finch, who's read Mockingbird. He's adored. He's a father. He's a hero. His daughter, who tells the story, absolutely finds no fault in him. Nor does she describe anyone else ever finding any fault in him. None of the neighbors find fault in him. In Lee's new book, or what people think is the first version, Lee has turned Atticus into a racist. When Ghost Set a Watchman came out, more than anything, that's what rocked America. That's why they didn't believe she wrote it. Why would you do that to America's favorite lawyer?
1: You know, again, uh, Lee's story is so fascinating. Um, Tonya Carter, Lee's lawyer at the time, Ghost Set a Watchman was discovered. Claims she accidentally found a manuscript while she was looking through Lee's papers, and it wasn't a secret that Lee had submitted a manuscript to her editors in 1957 under the title "Go Set a Watchman," and that it had been accepted as was. But the assumption was that she'd gotten rid of it. It's also not a secret that she tried to get "To Kill a Mockingbird" published in 1957. Uh, the question is if. Go Set a Watchman is the preliminary version of To Kill a Mockingbird, or were these always two separate pieces? I mean, the other question is, has it been altered since then? Uh, Apparently the writing is not as smooth or as polished as To Kill a Mockingbird.
0: Right, and I need to make a disclaimer, because I've never read Go Set a a Watchman, so I'm making a rush to judgment based on reading what critics and professors are saying in their reviews. Uh, I didn't read it on purpose when it came out because I heard it deconstructed Atticus and I didn't think I wanted to do that. Like a lot of other people, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I have bought it. It's in the trunk of my car, and I may <laughs> am going to read it. I think I finally have the nerve. Is there
1: significance to it being in the trunk of your car? Uh,
0: well, I just haven't had the nerve to get it out of the trunk yet. Uh, you know,
1: that sounds serious. Um, you know, So it's taken seven years to, to deliberate whether or not you're ready to deconstruct Atticus.
0: I know. It's sad. It's true. But I will say it makes sense to me that a story written about a father from the point of view of a 20-something, by its nature, would read very differently than a child's perspective. Perspective of her father, uh, especially in 1957, and goes out a Watchman Scouts not living in the sleepy Makeham town, and her education has expanded well beyond the Dewey Decimal System taught by Miss Caroline. She lives in New York, and the world has changed a lot in the years since the Great Depression. The family dynamic is different. Her view of the world isn't, she's not an innocent child. She doesn't idealize her father. So the style, by definition, would have to be more modern. And Ghosts at a Watchman, Scout doesn't even go by the name Scout. She goes by her real name, Jean Louise. And if you're a Southerner, you know lots of Southerners have double names. But Jean <laughs> Louise is educated. She's been exposed to other cultures and other ways of seeing the world that conflict with her upbringing. In Mockingbird, her idea of another of a Northerner is someone from Winston, Alabama, Winston County, that is. Uh, and Ghosts at a Watchman. She's looking really at the world in reverse. Well,
1: it was an interesting little side note. One time I attended a workshop at the University of Alabama, and I was informed by people who were native to Tuscaloosa that Tennessee was not a southern state.
0: (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) Anyway, so Lee spent two years reworking this first version into a second one, making it um, a single um, coherent story with a much more understandable and uh, unified plot as well as thematic vision.
0: Yeah, I think that's my understanding as well. I mean, Mockingbird is the story of a place called Maycomb. Uh, but Maycomb, Alabama is more than a town. It's actually a character. That may be the way, that's the best way, I think, to really understand Maycomb. Maycomb has opinions. Maycomb has history. Maycomb can be good to you. It can be supportive but it can also hurt people, and it can even kill. It's plagued with all kinds of problems that we all have. It has problems with gender roles, classicism, disabilities of various sorts, child abuse, child abandonment, judge, drug addiction, even incest. Makeham has a trouble defining manhood. What defines a man of strength and character? That's a question in Makeham. Mothers are mostly absent, which is an interesting detail and, of course, a reflection on Lee's personal experience. But the injustice of segregation clearly stands out most and is the single focal point of the entire second half of the book. All these themes are very adult. And they all live together in this little bitty town. <laughs>
1: Which is really kind of ironic when we think that most students are required to read this book in the eighth grade.
0: (laughs) I know. Lee gets away with a lot of that by masquerading these concerns because it's from the point of view of an impish, little, lovable nine-year-old voice. The narrator, and it's kind of this funny thing that she does, is an adult. But she's telling the story and exploring her life as she understood it when she was between the ages of six to nine. One clear example that I just referenced is the thing with the Dewey Decimal System. If you've been to a library, you recognize that term. That's how books are organized. But Scout uses the term in reference to the teaching methods of the renowned educator John Dewey. She doesn't know that. shes It's cute. It's funny. It's a reminder that you're seeing life from a vantage point of innocence. But back to your original point. Lee raises subjects so sensitive, my principal would lose his mind if I told him I wanted to teach a book to my students about children who taunted a disabled man, an African-American who was accused of raping a woman who was actually raped by her father, and the father murdered the disabled man. And I teach kids who are older and preparing for college. But somehow Lee disarms us all with this southern humor and innocent tomboy vigor.
1: So, uh, back to how it came to us in that way. The story goes that Harper Lee presented her first manuscript to a publishing company, Lippincott, and they gave it to an editor named Tay Hohoff.
0: Yes, and Tay was tough. She was an industry veteran. She was impressed with the book saying this, and I'll quote her, The spark of the true writer flashed in every line, but she also said it was by no means fit for publication. It was a series of anecdotes. There wasn't a beginning, a middle, and an end. So the book had to be reworked.
1: Well, I have to be honest, I can see why her editors uh, made her rework the book, and the tone of Mockingbird is funny. Uh, The irony of what we know to be true and how scouts see things is relatable, and you know, and the dialogue is funny, but Lee makes us remember uh, what being a kid feels like, and she's full of grace. I mean, the social criticism is there, but it's less confrontational with the reader. And uh, Scout's naivete, in a way, uh, gives us hope and humanity. And honestly, Atticus is kind of naive as well.
0: Oh, now, no doubt. And of course, no one enjoys being scolded. And I'm sure scolding books don't really become bestsellers. So Mockingbird shows you the value of a good editor. Tay Hohoff worked more than I can imagine any editor really working on a first novel. Hohoff and Lee recasted the entire book. In the process of recasting or rewriting, it took two years. They made revisions all the way until the book came out pushed the setting of Mockingbird back to the Depression-era 1930s. It's more traditional. It's dreamy. The hardships of the Depression are pronounced. But it also kind of equals the playing field in some ways. Everyone's poor and make them.
1: And I think that's interesting. Uh, And it's interesting to note that the people in her hometown were not happy about the book when it first came out. They complained uh, Lee was, and I quote, airing dirty family laundry and making everyone look racist and insular and of course uh you know those may be fair complaints (laughs) but i will also point out that as the tour started rolling in things changed to the point that when uh it came time to tear down the old courthouse no one would do it today the old courthouse has been preserved into a museum for lee and capote memorabilia and it's a tourist site
0: Well, I want to compare one more thing about Go Set a Watchman to Kill a Mockingbird before we kind of end the discussion on that controversy and and get into the book. And, And that's the titles. The title Go Set a Watchman comes from the Bible. It comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 21, verse 6. Jehovah God can be quoted as saying this, Go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. God is talking about the fall of Babylon, the fall of a great society. That's where she got her title. But look at the book as it finally came out, To Kill a Mockingbird. That takes its name from nature. It's a symbol, again, but of a different kind. A mockingbird is best known for mimicking the sounds of other birds. The symbol is very layered. It's immediately described in the book. It's, we, we're told what it means. We're told it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. But again, the biblical language is invoked. There's an interesting parallel. And the more you think on what a mockingbird is, the more complicated the symbolism gets when you think about it. Both titles are taking strong moral stands on the issues of Lee's day and the issues of our day. Both are ways of commenting on the heartbreaking events that were literally happening in her hometown and around the region that she loved. The differences are what's stylistic. So let's look at the book that charmed the world. In Mockingbird, there's a clear cut, mostly perfect protagonist and a clear cut, evil antagonist. No reader feels judged personally. We're safely on the right side of the moral issue. We all know that we had been citizens of Maycomb. We'd have stood right there by Atticus in front of the jailhouse in the middle of the night. In some ways, it reminds me of what Arthur Miller did in The Crucible that was published, you know, just three years before Mockingbird. Lee structures the novel to where even an eight-year-old child clearly sees and understands the obvious injustice in Maycomb society. Anyone with any grain of decency would have never convicted Tom Robinson.
1: Well, and you know, and yet the world uh, watched him at Till's jury members deliberate less than ten minutes before releasing his murderers in 1955.
0: True, but as readers here, we also know for a, a fact Weed had never done that. That's the subtlety of Lee's criticism. Hoff and Lee with To Kill a Mockingbird address Lee's social concerns. The ones she addresses in Ghosts at a Watchman, it's just different. Let me point out another thing before we open up Mockingbird. I am totally and absolutely convinced, and I may talk about this again later, Harper Lee did write the book. Uh, I know there's lots of theories, conspiracy theories, that Truman Capote wrote it and attached his name to it.
1: This Is that a thing?
0: Yes, and and like I said, we may want to get into it, but I think we needed to settle in on the front end. She wrote the book.
1: (laughs) It's so crazy that a woman uh, so devoted to staying off the controversy radar has so many conspiracy theories surrounding her.
0: I know, so true. But let's get into it. All right, we've talked enough about how the book came about and the controversy of the book that may or may not have been the first draft, but let's go back to the 1930s. Gary, take us down the road, exactly 352 miles from Memphis, Tennessee, to Monroeville, or the home of Harper Lee and Truman Persons, or Truman Capote.
1: Well, sure, but uh, I want to make an amendment to your request. (laughs) Oh, okay. The uh, historical setting, in theory, is 1933 to 1935, and... Um, I'll bring that up uh, a little specially when we talk about the Scottsboro trials, but um, Lee's political concerns and the social context of the book is more in line with the realities of the 1950s. In fact, uh, some of the actual history uh, is historically inaccurate. And if you just want to get picky, for example, the WPA did not exist when this novel is set, although it's referenced Eleanor Roosevelt did not violate segregation law by sitting with a black audience at the Southern Conference on Human Welfare. It seems to me uh, Lee did not spend two years of her life revising a book to accurately portray uh, political or social issues of the rural American South of the 1930s. Uh, the poverty is Depression-era poverty, but her interest is different And that's the context that I would like to revisit just for a moment, although uh, we don't have time to treat it sufficiently. We discussed Jim Crow and how segregation evolved during our series on uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his seminal work, Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And I encourage everyone to listen to that entire series for a better understanding of this issue from the perspective of uh, one of the real-life social uh, rights leaders, Dr. King and uh, I don't mean to be controversial when I say this, but Atticus Finch is not a civil rights hero, as we think of the heroes that came out of the time period. And I'm not trying to degrade him. Obviously, what he does in this novel is noble and the right thing to do. It's heroic. I'm just saying least purpose is not to create a civil rights hero. Uh, the leaders of that moment were primarily African-American lawyers and preachers and professionals of all kinds, and they literally risked their lives. And And uh, I'm not saying white southerners, especially lawyers, did not participate because they did. That's well documented. I'm also not saying Lee's novel doesn't comment on civil rights because it does. It's not an important political expression for the era, no doubt. But it's not portraying a social movement or one of its leaders, to be picky historically, if you will.
0: Well, I agree with that. In fact, I'm going to argue that Atticus, although the focus of the movie, is not the entire focus of the book. The children are. The society is. Atticus is a part, but not in the way we think. This is a book about brokenness, and we're under. And we are to understand that everyone in this book is broken in their own way, and that includes Atticus. That's why it's transcendent. You don't get read in forty languages if your concern is only to write a regional Southern Gothic novel. That's provincial. The way Southern Gothic distorts things is the perfect median, and it suits Lee's themes, just like you know traditional Gothic novels suit the themes of. Emily Bronte, although I do say Lee liked to think of herself more of a Jane Austen of the South, but that's <laughs> an aside. Uh, really, though, these people in Makeham, they, they have crazy people in Makeham. There's a monster in Makeham. You can even say that there's unrequited love in Makeham, and right. those are all Gothic elements. Oh, no,
1: they got it all. <laughs> uh, well, perhaps the South is sort of suited to the Gothic. I mean, <laughs> we do have those... Uh, <laughs> Deliverance banjos playing in the background. Yes. I don't know how that's gothic. But anyway, uh, I lived here since my mid-20s. I can tell you, it does have a unique culture. Uh, its its positives are in plain view. So are its negatives. Um, and there is one feature of Southern life, especially in places where people have lived for generations, that's true today. And it was most certainly was more true in the 1930s. And that is the role of the Civil War that was fought all over the South by almost every family in the South uh, we can never forget that the Civil War ravaged and defined the South, and Reconstruction was even more brutal and bitter than the war. Uh, there was not a family in this region during that period that did not have a family member that died in that conflict. And uh, In 1935, uh, it's one generation removed from the 1870s. and uh, From the 1870s to 1935, a lot of change occurred across the country, um, but that change in the South was much slower. And Notice uh, how many references to the Civil War occur in this book. They're everywhere. Scout's teacher is defined by it. Time is counted from it. Almost every character is referenced to his relationship to something, someone, or someplace related to the Civil War. It's everywhere. It's all over the book. It's a very Southern thing. Um, the world changed, but the South struggled to find its place, and uh, this wore the South out, and Lee is really describing it like that.
0: Makem was an old town, but it was a tired old town when I first knew it. In rainy weather, the streets turned to red slop, and grass grew on the sidewalks. The courthouse sagged in the square. Somehow it was hotter then. A black dog suffered on a summer's day, and bony mules hitched to hoover carts, flicked flies in the sweltering shade of the live oaks of the square. "'Men's stiff collars wilted by nine in the morning "'and ladies bathed before noon after their three o'clock nap "'and by nightfall were like soft tea cakes "'with frostings of sweat and sweet talcum. "'People moved slowly then. "'They ambled across the square, "'they shuffled in and out of the stores around it, "'took their time about everything. "'A day was 24 hours long but seemed longer.' There was no hurry, for there was nowhere to go, nothing to buy and no money to buy it with, nothing to see outside the boundaries of Maycomb County. But it was a time of vague optimism for some of the people. Maycomb County had recently been told that it had nothing to fear but fear (laughs) itself.
1: Throwing a little Franklin Roosevelt there. And you got to love how she slipped uh, FDR's uh, 1933 quote from his inaugural address in there. That's great. I mean, the world is moving forward, but not so much from Maycomb, Alabama, for one thing. Um, we had the Great Migration. Um, many African-American families, perhaps uh, maybe even the best and brightest of the African-American families, left the South for for better opportunities up north. And uh, I know I'm leaving the, the time period of the novel, but I think this context helps us understand Lee's mindset in what she's setting up here. By the 1960s, uh, there were as many African-Americans living outside the South as were living in it. Over a million people had just picked up and left, and they were moving everywhere, and uh, many were becoming successful. They were getting representation in Congress, and you know, not in the South, but in other places, and they were demanding that the country look to the South and address issues of uh, racial inequalities. And I know you want to talk about the Scottsboro trial in detail um, as well as the Emmett Till case in 1955. You know, in the Scottsboro trial, there um, were literally false accusations of rape. And Emmett Till was abducted and tortured and murdered just a few hours from, uh, down the road from Lee's home. Uh, Rosa Parks in Montgomery, Alabama Was working with Dr. King to raise, um, you know, the national consciousness, and that was literally just down the road from Lee's hometown. These things were literally in the news as she was typing her manuscript and looking at the town of Monroeville.
0: And this novel is interested in time, but let's orient ourselves as readers, and this is something we have to do uh, when we read any book. But Lee is writing this book in 1956. So that's what you're describing, what's going on in 1956. But it's set in 1935. But we have to think of this too. We're reading it and we're interpreting it in our time. When we read any piece of writing, you know, that's the, the trifecta that's always going to be true. But in this novel, it's interesting because it's the political and social interactions that she's discussing, and it's how it affects the individual. That's what's important about the book. I read some article where Lee was asked what she was trying to do with her book. And she said this, she's just a country girl who wanted to tell an honest story about life as she saw it. But here's what we have to ask. What is she seeing? And when we look at what she's seeing, are we seeing the same thing? That's not a simple question. For one thing, she's often writing from her apartment in New York, but she's also uh, thinking about... A rural setting, we have the lights and the activity of New York City thrown against these sleepy towns in the south where people are living insulated, segregated lives. America was fighting the Cold War, competing for influence around the globe, claiming the moral high ground against the communist competitor of the Soviet Union. The rhetoric of American democracy, it's in the news every day, and that was in stark contrast to the legalized racial discrimination. It was a glaring contradiction to the stated values in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. This world, as sleepy as it was in Maycomb, was in conflict with what Harper Lee was living in other parts of the United States. It was going unnoticed by the insiders living in this culture she's describing.
1: But at the same time, um, Harper Lee was a product of the South and was never going to let anyone say that all Southern people were racist and backwards and simple-minded or even bad people. And She won't even totally condemn many who had been raised who accept segregation without questioning it. Um, Lee's own father who she adored like Scout loved her father and who actually did defend two black men accused of murder, never questioned the wisdom of racial segregation. And when Lee was a student at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, she contributed a one-act play to the University Humor magazine, uh, satirizing a fundamentalist racist politician. She literally created this fictional... Newspaper character called the uh, Jackassonian Democrat, and its logo was uh, two white-sheeted figures carrying burning crosses.
0: And so her book is her answer. She is a woman of two worlds, and let's read how she describes
1: it. When he was nearly 13, my brother Jim got his arm badly broken at the elbow. When it healed, and Jim's fears of never being able to play football were assuaged, He was seldom self-conscious about his injury. His left arm was somewhat shorter than his right, but when he stood or walked, the back of his hand was at right angles to his body, his thumb parallel to his thigh. He couldn't have cared less, so as long as he could pass and punt.
0: So the structure of the novel, in many ways, will revolve around Scout's brother, Jim. It's a coming-of-age novel. Scout grows up, but more importantly, Jim does. So we want to watch what happens to Jim as we read the book. The first sentence talks about Jim being broken. The second sentence, sentence talks about Jim being afraid. The third sentence talks about Jim being deformed. It references right and left. Right and left is going to come up a lot in the book. What is right? Who is right? Let's read the second and third paragraph.
1: When enough years had gone by to enable us to look back on them, we sometimes discuss the events leading to his accident. I maintained that the Yule started it all, but Jim, who was four years my senior, said it started long before that. He said it began the summer Dill came to us, when Dill first gave us the idea of making Boo Radley come out. I said if he wanted to take a broad view of the thing, it really began with Andrew Jackson. If General Jackson hadn't run the creeks up the creek, Simon Finch would never have paddled up the Alabama, and where would we be if he hadn't? We were far too old to settle an argument with a fist fight, so we consulted Atticus and our father said we were both right.
0: (laughs) And here's another interesting question. What is the beginning of things? Shaw, if you remember, always believed that things never ended. Well, Lee seems to suggest that things never really began in one static place. What is the beginning of something? What is the beginning of our identity? This, of course, and if you've been to the South, is often a topic of conversation. And sometimes, as Lee gets into, it can get a little ridiculous.
1: <laughs> I can imagine uh, the paragraphs about the Finch family history uh, in particular would be really funny to a reader in Great Britain or China or, or other places with really long and deep histories. And unless you're a Native American, uh, if you live in this country, you're an immigrant one way or another. Um, by definition, American history is uh, relatively shallow uh, time-wise to be bragging about having uh, blue-blooded royalty. And, and to me, uh, Lee seems to be making fun of this a little. The Finches are ashamed they can't claim ancestor to the Battle of Hastings. And I would suggest that any resident of the South would make him likely as a family tree that reeks of some fraud and some fabrication. <laughs>
0: I know all there, of ours do.
1: Right. There may be some nobility in Alabama, but I suspect even uh, the most respectable families can trace their roots back to bootleggers or sharecroppers or other very, very humble beginnings. None are the Windsors, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, You know, uh, and notice one other detail. Her satire here in the Finch case includes a reference to slavery. Simon Finch left England over religious convictions, only the land in America. Forget his religious teachings on the possession of human chattel, and he bought three slaves.
0: What we see here is the construction of a society that is creating for itself a fixed hierarchy. They are very specific social groupings. At one point, Lee actually refers to them as tribes. The Finches are city people, and they're on the upper level of this caste system. They live on the main residential street with their cook, Calpurnia. She's African-American, but strong and very educated. We'll see that she's a mockingbird, really, in one sense of the word. She's a woman who lives cross-culturally. She's in a different caste, but lives in this one most of the time. She lives with these upper crust white people although not even the upper crust of Makeham have money but she switches cultures completely when she goes home there are other members of this upper crust group the Debo's house is two do- doors down the radley place is three doors the other way but we'll see that neither of these places are, are really good places but these people are accepted members of this upper group
1: well uh, what about charles baker harris
0: dill he's an outsider of another kind He's not a total outsider. He's from Meridian, Mississippi. That's you know better than being from New York or Chicago. But Scout does ask him point blank where he's from. That's the only way you can orient yourself in this world. That is the world of Maycomb. It is here where Lee wants us to place ourselves. But where do we place ourselves? Do we live on the main street? Would we be allowed? Are we outsiders? What do we do with ourselves? How would we see the world if we saw, if all we saw were the borders of Macon County, Alabama? There are two key phrases that everyone knows when they read this book. They're both questions, and they sound like almost the same question. And in, in Chapter 3, Atticus famously says this to Scout. First of all, if you can learn a simple trick, Scout, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You, real, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. He goes on to say that she had to put herself in the shoes of someone else. When you read it like that, you're inclined to think that he's mixing his metaphors, at the very least, maybe at least trying to say the same thing two different ways. But the problem with taking that look at it is it can't possibly be true. You don't spend two years editing a book and then mix up your metaphors in chapter three. That's not what she's doing. These are two different metaphors. And it's in view of the metaphors that we have to look at the entire work. Lee in her books asks us to walk around in someone's shoes. Well, that's an awkward process. You move in other people's shoes. They don't fit. They're not comfortable. And that's obviously a good exercise and something we should all do. We should definitely do it when we read the book. We'll try to see the world and believe in the world of Makeham, Alabama. But she also asks us to walk around in someone else's skin. That's not a thing. You can't do that. Lee ultimately will demonstrate not only the impossibility of that, but the importance of recognizing the impossibility of that. My ability to consider your point of view will always be limited, and there's a certain humility that comes with understanding that.
1: You know, when you look at a picture of Harper Lee, she looks lovable. I mean, her smile is impish. You can tell she's scout. Uh, And this is a book to enjoy. And The metaphorical language of the South is realistic. I mean, I've heard people talk like these characters ever since I've lived here.
0: Oh, yes, and I've heard them tell crazy stories about crazy people as nutty as any person in this story. But at the same time, behind the humor, there's not so much a scolding, but a challenge and a hopeful admonition that we have better days ahead.
1: Just like FDR said. (laughs) And I think that's very true. And I'm excited about reading this book again. I I enjoyed it as a child. But as we reread it together this time, I know I'll enjoy it even more as an adult. And uh, we hope you join us for the next three weeks as we discuss the symbolism and the complexity and the dialogue and the humor of this beloved tale. And as always... Thanks for listening. We always like to encourage you to check us out on social media. They give us five-star ratings to tell a friend about the podcast. Text them an episode. Go to our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. We have stuff there for teachers in the classroom. We have merchandise. There's just all kind of goodies there. Thanks again for being with us.
0: Peace out.